You're listening to the College Age Movement Podcast. What is going on, you guys? Hope that you are doing well this week. We are in the third part of a series called The Church, and this is actually our 100th episode of the College Age Movement Podcast, which is absolutely crazy. Thanks for hanging out with us over the last few years as we've been putting these out. So third part of the church lessons from the book of Acts. Last week, Rachel Gilligan, our kids director, uh, gave an incredible message. If you missed that, if you didn't listen to the podcast, uh, go back, listen to that one first. Uh, She did an absolutely incredible job walking through the first part of Acts chapter three and talked about this incredible interaction between a lame beggar at the gates of the temple and Peter and John. And it was just great. So go ahead and check that out and then come back and listen to this week if you have the time. This week, we're going to just jump ahead a little bit into Acts chapter 4. But before we do that, I want to look at Acts chapter 3, the second half of the chapter. Uh, Verses 11 through 13 say this. While the man held on to Peter and John, this is the lame beggar that was healed, All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade, on the outside of the the temple. That's where they're at. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. So he has this interaction, and at the end he's like, and by the way, you killed the guy that we are doing this through. So there's there's this amazing thing that's happening here. People were astonished at what was happening right in front of their eyes. Peter and John, on the other hand, were surprised that their expectations of God were so low. They were surprised that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were surprised themselves. And I think it, a simple application question for us would be this. What are our expectations of God? What are our expectations of God? The people that were astonished were God-fearing Jews who participated in regular worship of God, who participated in regular sacrifice to God, and yet they were astonished. But here's the thing. Like like them, I am a regular God-fearing worshiper of God, and I think that I would probably be astonished too. So I can't cast judgment on the fact that they were blown away at the healing of this lame beggar. And and on one hand, it's like, yeah, like that's freaking incredible. Like you just healed a man who could not walk and now he walks. I think we need to have an appropriate level of awe. But on the other hand, why wouldn't they and why wouldn't I, if I saw God do something incredible, say, yeah, like, that's unreal, but of course God did that, and I can't wait to watch him do it again. Expecting to be awed and astonished by what God is doing in us and through us and the lives of the people around us. Not not in a way that's like, 
like I'm, I'm communicating, do this God or else like, I won't, I won't be amazed with about you or of you if, if you don't do these incredible miracles right in front of my eyes. But I think that there's a holy anticipation and a healthy anticipation that we can have, have of what he's going to do because of the fact that he's God. He's God. He hung the stars in the sky. And, and my prayer is that as he's doing incredible things here on earth, that I wouldn't be amazed uh, in a way that's like, I can't, like, I can't believe that. Like, wow, I didn't think God was capable of that. But then we'd be just like, wow, look at how God showed up again. Look at the miraculous ways that he's working in our lives. You see, the people in the temple had a perspective that put God in, in what I would call like a minuscule framework. Their expectations were logical. Peter and John knew who Jesus was on an intimate level and had confidently expected nothing less. When they said to this lame beggar, walk, they expected that God would make him walk. Their faith was illogical. I want to have a logical faith. I want to have faith that goes beyond my human understanding, that goes beyond my human capacity. Jesus already did something on the cross that makes no sense at all. Why, why give up your life for the brokenness of the world? Like That is illogical love. That is illogical grace. And my prayer is that our response would be illogical faith. We can be in awe of how God works while t- simultaneous saying, simultaneously saying, of course he did. Of course he did. So what happens next is the priests and the captain of the temple guard throw Peter and John into prison because they heal this man and they're preaching the name of Jesus and they're preaching Jesus's resurrection. And not only that, the resurrection of all God's people, which would signify that they're talking about the beginning of God's new world, that God's new creation, that Jesus was going to set in motion what they had been waiting for for so long. And and there's an incredible amount of context that needs to be unpacked here. And I'll try to streamline it a little bit. I'm not going to cover all of it, but wouldn't you think that Jewish people would be excited about the promised Messiah having have come? And of course, most of them would be excited about that, but not if you were already in a position of power and definitely not if you helped have him crucified. See, the, the context here, the, the, the cultural and religious and, and political context is that the, Sadduc- the Sadducees, these religious aristocrats, did not love the message that Peter and John were bringing because it signaled the beginning of the end for them. Their earthly position was at risk. You see, the religious elite had a stranglehold on the Jewish faith, and because they had a stranglehold on the Jewish faith, they really had a stranglehold on the Jewish culture. Everything was dependent on what they provided because they had such reverence for God, and these were, for for lack of a better term, like the gatekeepers of God. They, they were the top of the religious totem pole. They were top of their own cultural totem pole. They were making a ton of money because of the temple. They were making a ton of money because of their relationship with Rome. And that intimate relationship with Rome also led to them having more power and political position and all these incredible things for them. Like They controlled what would happen and what wouldn't for Jewish people. And the disciples' message threatened all of that because Jesus was about to turn everything right side up. So Acts chapter 4 verses 5 through 11 go on to say this. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel know this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The religious elite say, by what power or name did you do this? And this goes back to when the Pharisees and Sadducees years before are actually communicating with Jesus himself. And they ask him, like, how are you doing this? And they start to accuse him of being possessed by a demon. They say that he is in tandem with Bezabel, that, that he is in tandem with uh, Satan himself. There's, there's all these things that they accuse Jesus of. And Luke, the author of, of the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, makes something beautifully clear here that I think we can't miss. Is that it says, Peter, comma, filled with the Holy Spirit, comma. That phrase, those words are so important. And that's the next point this week is filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, a disciple who got to physically walk with Jesus himself, did not walk alone. He did not walk into this circumstance dependent on his own strength and his own abilities. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. No part of Peter, no part of John, no no part of the author, Luke, for that matter, wanted anyone reading the Acts of the Apostles to believe that the focus should be on them, that the focus should always be on Jesus. And this leads us to two questions. Number one, how often do we invite the Holy Spirit intentionally to move through us? I know that I do not do it enough. There was a circumstance uh, about a year and a half ago. I was at our high school ministry, and uh, one of my good friends, Tate, uh, came busting out of the chapel. And at the, at the time, our junior high and our high school ministry were, were meeting together. And he comes out, and he's got two kids with him, and one kid's bleeding. His face is just, like, busted up. And I was like, what's happening? He's Tate's like, I need you. So we take him outside. We, we get this story about these eighth graders. We're flipping the hat off this this freshman who's kind of like, he's kind of a lone wolf. And he, he didn't have a group of friends. And these guys were kind of picking on him. And he asked them nicely, like, please stop knocking my hat off my head during worship. All these things. And they, they didn't. And so he turned around, put a kid in a headlock, and just smacked him in the face three times. Like, good, like, solid punches. This kid is way bigger than them. Um these three kids had small man syndrome. Like they're little eighth graders who are cool trying to pick on the big, like quote unquote, not cool freshmen. And that freshman put them in their place. So I, I pull these kids aside. I, I have conversations. I'm mad. I'm angry. Uh, I'm trying to, to keep my cool. And, and I get the kids separated and I'm talking to this freshman by himself and he just breaks down and tells me his life story and everything that's going on currently in his life. And I'm like, dang, like you got a lot of pent up aggression. You got a lot of pent up rage. And like, I t- totally understand <laughs> why you did the thing that you did, but you've got to understand like you, you can't physically come at people. But then his dad shows up and his, his, his dad is high out of his mind. Like he's so stoned and I'm taking his dad. Like this guy's gotta be 25 years older than me. And I'm taking his dad. I'm walking him to this classroom to have a private conversation with him. And every part of me just wants to yell and scream and I don't know why, because I definitely don't do this enough, but I said, Lord, I need you. I need you to speak through me because left to my own devices, I'm going to say some things that might get me fired that also might not be productive at all for this kid, for this family, for anything that happened. And I cannot tell you what I said for sure. 
I do know that I told the dad that he needed to get his act together and told him that he needs to be more intentional with his son. But I said some things that I cannot remember to this day. But six months later, that same kid came up to me. He's like, hey, I don't know what happened with you and my dad, but things have changed. And I'm not saying that the words that I spoke were the sole reason. I think the Holy Spirit can move in a lot of different ways. I think the Holy Spirit can move through that kid in the way that he was interacting with his parents. I think that there's just a, a plethora of things that could have happened. But I know from my specific interaction that I, left to my own humanity, wouldn't have done things the way that God would have had me do them. But when I invited the Holy Spirit into the situation, things worked out better. We will see a dramatic difference between the situations we try to handle on our own and the ones we lean into the Holy Spirit, whom God intentionally gave us to be a helper. The reason the Holy Spirit is here is that we would be somebody who constantly tap into the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, like I need you to walk with me. I need you to walk through me. I can't do this on my own. God intentionally gave us his helper, so let's take advantage of that. Second question would be, how often when questioned do we publicly point to Jesus? How often do we, do we publicly point to, to Jesus? If Jesus in our mind is clearly the biggest part of our lives, is it clear to those around us? If those in our lives were interviewed and, and asked the question, what do you think of when you think about this person? What do you think about when you think about Evan? Would at least a part of their answer be Jesus? Like I'm a pastor. I get paid to be on a platform and to pastor people. Like I, I'm, I'm sure that there would probably be somebody who'd be like, yeah, like he loves Jesus because it's part of his job. But like if I wasn't a pastor, if it was just left to my own personal relationship with Jesus, would people say like, yeah, he's passionate about Jesus. He's passionate about, about leading people towards the grace and the love and the mercy and the acceptance of Jesus. See, cause this is the thing, like let's my own personal relationship. Like, and we all hear that, right? Like we, we hear the term personal relationship with Jesus. And most of us could like identify with that. Even if you don't follow Jesus, if you're like spiritually unresolved, you would say uh, like, no, I know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Like people talk about that all the time. But your personal relationship with Jesus, my personal relationship with Jesus is not meant to be private. Our personal relationship with Jesus is not meant to be private. People need to hear it. Like it's meant to be shared. Like even in biblical times, like like the, the, the Christians were incredible citizens. Even in Rome, they were like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe these Christians are taking care of our sick. They're taking care of our orphans and our widows and all these things. Like they were amazed at them. But the one thing that the Christian people, that the followers of Jesus would not do is call Caesar Lord. They said, no, Jesus is Lord. So if they were publicly asked, what was the most important thing to them? It was Jesus. It was Christ and him crucified. Are we willing to get our personal relationship with Jesus out of the private sector? Are our personal relationship with Jesus out into the public? That is the whole entire point. Another word that Peter uses here, cornerstone, cornerstone. Many of us would recognize this word cornerstone because of modern worship. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made stronger than the Savior's long. Great, great, great song. But this word usage was intentional by Peter because he's speaking to the religious elite who had the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, all these things memorized. He would have he would have known that they knew, like he did, what Psalm 18 was. And Psalm 18, 118 says this. It says, When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. 
The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my strength, my helper. I look in the tr- in in I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. This is important. This is is refer- referencing to the fact that the Jewish people were having trust in human beings instead of Jesus. They were having trust in Rome instead of Jesus. It goes on to say this. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Good great. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Peter is making it really, really clear that Jesus takes precedence over any relationships that the Jews had built with Rome. They surrounded me on every side, but the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. While understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, understanding that Jesus and God are one, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, he is talking about Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verses 21 through 24, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That sounds familiar. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is in Psalms, not Acts. So literally a thousand years later, Peter is saying the same thing that the author of Psalms said. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, but he says Jesus, comma, is the stone that the builders rejected and it has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it in this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. What Peter was trying to make really clear to everyone listening was that the Messiah that they were so desperately waiting for had already come. Jesus, 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 Lord, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He says his name over and over again because he wants it to hit home. Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, is the cornerstone which the builders rejected. And you, my friends, are the builders. Cornerstone is defined as the rock upon which the weight of an entire structure rests. The religious people of the time were too caught up in their own religion to see he whom the entire foundation rested upon. And my prayer is that today, 2,000 years later, we wouldn't get so caught up in our religion that we miss Jesus that we stop pointing everything back to Jesus, that we would say, well, here's the boxes that need to be checked and here's all the things that need to be happening and here's the works that I've performed and all these different things. Let's not get so caught up in our own religion that we miss he whom the entire weight of the structure rests. Luke goes on to say this in Acts chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. He says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Unschooled, ordinary men. This has to be one of my hands down favorite passages in scripture. I cannot help but imagine the faces of the religious elite looking at ordinary men and being astonished. Yes, they were astonished that they had healed a beggar. Yes, they were astonished that they spoke with eloquence. Yes, they were in shock. But this is the point that we cannot miss. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. What made them noteworthy was not their abilities. It was not their actions. It was their proximity to Jesus. Not their actions, not their abilities, their proximity to Jesus. If anything can be said of us, let it be that people know that we have been with Jesus. 
that people look at us and say, man, I, I can see that they have been with Jesus. I've been doing this for five years, and, and a lot of you would know this. I did not go to school to be a pastor. I did not go to seminary. I have no theological, formal theological training. My pastoral relationship with Jesus is my personal relationship with Jesus. I'm an unschooled, ordinary man, and I am not putting myself on the same level as the disciples. But it, it, it's the way that God has reassured me through passages like this, through passages where Paul is talking to Timothy and said, let nobody look down on you because of your age. There's so many reasons why I have disqualified myself from being in ministry and telling people about Jesus. But over and over again, Jesus has made it clear to me that it's not about my schooling. It's not about pe culture, people deeming me extraordinary. It's not people deeming you extraordinary. It's about us just being in proximity to Jesus. I've actually had people, like one of the, the situations that has stuck out to me for a long time, so a couple years in, I had somebody look me in the eye and say, you are not qualified to speak to this ministry. This ministry is not what God would want it to be because you are not qualified. And every part of me was pissed off. Every part of me was angry. Every part of me wanted to be combative. But Jesus whispered so gently, I qualify you. You are walking with me. And more importantly, I am walking with you. That's what makes you qualified to be a part of this ministry. And that's all I need. And that's, I, I said that to the guy. I don't know if he received that. Like he didn't seem like he received it. He still just didn't like that. I didn't have a degree in the thing that he wanted me to have a degree in. And that's fine. Like he, he has his opinions. But Jesus is the opinion that I care about. You see, there's going to be a thousand different reasons why people are going to try to, to disqualify you, but Jesus qualifies you. Your qualification does not come from your schooling. It does not come from your experience or whether or not culture or the church would deem you extraordinary. Your qualification comes from him. End of story, full stop. So the Sadducees take a break and talk among themselves and they come to this conclusion and, and Peter and John also respond in Acts chapter four, verses 18 through 20. It says, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak and teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. So the last point this week is let nothing stop us. Let nothing stop us. There are going to be plenty of reasons for us to stop talking about Jesus. It could be cultural pressure. It could be loss of relationships. It could be social pressure. It could be ma uh, threats, maybe, maybe depending on where you live uh, or where you operate. People could threaten you. Um, and, and it could be a physical threat. It could be, uh, I, hey, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore if you don't stop talking about Jesus, whatever. Maybe something else. There, there's plenty of reasons. But no matter what reason the world or our own humanity throws at us, let us be people who walk with Jesus and fall so deeply in love with him that we cannot help. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard, that Jesus has changed our lives. He has transformed us in ways that we cannot be quiet about. That we, we, we cannot be people who are so passive that we say, yeah, Jesus has changed my life. But I don't want to tell anybody about it because I'm afraid of what they might think of me. Who cares? Who cares what people might think of you? Jesus has changed my life. Jesus has changed your life. Whatever your situation is, no matter what your, your social context is, let us be people who cannot stop, who cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Thank you for listening to the College Age Movement podcast. College Age Movement's in-person gatherings meet Tuesday nights at 7, and we would love to have you there. If you are unable to join us in person, you can engage online at faithchapel.cc or follow us on our socials at collegeagemvmt.